philosophy are sometimes considered two irreconcilable ends of the spectrum of human logic. One grounded in numbers and empiricism, the other bound to free thought and possibility. But issues raised by the American prison system demand we bridge that gap. Dr. Sharon Dolovich is a professor at the UCLA School of Law whose background in political theory and legal education equipped her to become an academic advocate for prison system reform. In her published works, she cites political theories hearkening back to philosophers like John Rawls, who argued that legal punishments correspond to moral wrongs, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who posited that a just society is founded on a social contract. Last year, Professor Dolovich founded the UCLA Law COVID-19 Behind Bars Project, which supplies nationwide data about the effects of COVID-19 on incarcerated persons in the United States. Today, her team's data are used by the Centers for Disease Control to inform policy decisions and pave the way for systemic reform. So before we get started, we just kind of want to know, how did you get started in your journey of becoming a lawyer and eventually a professor of law? Ah, so um, I guess I was always one of those kids who, I was one of the kids who always thought she would go to law school. Probably I argued a lot and people said, oh, you're going to make a great lawyer. So I absorbed that when I was a kid. And so when I was in college, I was planning to go straight to law school. And for me, the um, bump in the road came when I got really interested in political theory and was encouraged by professors in my department to do a PhD. And so I ended up uh, sort of taking a step away from my attended path of going right to law school. And I ended up doing a PhD in political theory. And I was really engaged and interested in what I was studying. But when I finished my dissertation, I found myself sort of having answered the questions that prompted it to my satisfaction and realizing that I had always intended to go to law school. So I ended up circling back and um, I had a fellowship first at Harvard Law School and then I stayed at Harvard for law school as a JD. So somewhere along the line, I realized that I had this deep interest in incarceration and pretty much starting in law school, that became my focus. So I brought the theory tools that I had got gathered and learned in my PhD to the question of what we owe to people that we incarcerate. And, you know, I wrote a dissertation about feminist critiques of contemporary theories of justice. So that had me thinking about, you know, justice and fairness and power and uh, oppression, which are all obviously related to the work that I do now. That's awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about that research agenda and what you're primarily interested in? Yeah, I mean, I think I mentioned a minute ago, I feel like all of my work dances around, interrogates in various ways, the question of what it is society owes to people that we incarcerate. That's sort of a, a, um, a flip of the way that people usually think about prison. People usually think about prison as something that, that incarcerated people somehow deserve and that they have done something to require that we incarcerate them as if what, what is owed is from the incarcerated person to society and they pay what is owed, they pay their debt to society by being in custody. But what that misses is that incarceration is a political decision. It's a political choice we all make. It's not entailed by anything anybody does, right? It's a choice we make about how to respond to certain kinds of illegal acts. And when we choose to incarcerate, we are actually, by doing that, we are actually taking on a set of obligations, right? If you take somebody, you put them in custody, you now are responsible for their safety and protection. Because if you 
you know, when you put them in, in, let's say, if you put someone in prison, you are stripping them of their ability to keep themselves safe and to pr provide for themselves. Um, and so the state actually takes on an obligation to provide that safety and care and protection. And that's both what I think of as a kind of baseline moral obligation that we have because of the choice we make to respond to crime and disorder with prison or jail. And it's also a constitutional obligation. I mean, even the Supreme Court, which in many ways has, has a very narrow and pinched idea of what under the Eighth Amendment prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment of what we owe people in custody. But even the Supreme Court has said multiple times that the state having incarcerated now has a responsibility. And so that that's the idea that informs all of the work that I do. And I've I've come at that question from very different perspectives. So I wrote a paper thinking about a Rawlsian theory of punishment and what principles of punishment we would endorse if we actually didn't realize where we might end up in the system, right? Are we gonna end up being incarcerated? Are we gonna end up being crime victims? If, if we didn't know what principles of punishment would we think were fair, that was one approach. But I've also asked the same kind of question from a policy perspective. So I have work about private prisons and a lot of work about prison conditions. And again, all motivated by this question of what the state owes to people we incarcerate. I've also uh, done some ethnographic work focused on the LA County Jail, in particular, a unit in the jail that houses the gay men and trans women. And so the question there has been like, you know, what's happening there? Why are they segregated? Um, is it a way to, you know, is it an effective way to keep people safe? What do we think about the idea of, of segregating people on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity in, in in custody. Um, so that was an ethnographic approach to the same question. And all the work that I've done and all the work that I'm in the middle of doing right now is pretty much, I see in, in the same vein. That's a really interesting perspective and not one that we've actually heard a lot. It's almost as though there's some kind of social contract in the style of a Jean-Jacques Rousseau kind of thing. Would you say that's about accurate? Um, I don't know if I would call it a Rousseauian kind of approach because there, I think the idea is that there's like almost an inherent social idea that everyone is party to. I think this is much more maybe Frankensteinian catch as catch can contract. And it's one that is actually deeply, as you know, deeply biased and unfair um, toward the people that are incarcerated. And in that sense, I hesitate to frame it in that way. But I will say that I think you've caught something very essential in the idea of a contract, I have two terms that I use. One is society's carceral burden. And the idea there is when we incarcerate, we take on a burden um, of care toward the people we incarcerate. And the other term that I use sometimes is society's carceral bargain, which suggests a kind of contract in a different way. The idea there is we have basically said to the court system and the prison system, you know, we want you to take these people away from society, remove them from society so the rest of us don't have to engage. We have this fantasy that when we incarcerate people, they disappear and we no longer have to think about them. And I think of it as society's carceral bargain because on the one hand, there's this putative benefit to society. I don't think of it as a benefit, but I think it's perceived that way. Um, and on the other hand, we then, there have, we then have an obligation to run a prison system that will then provide all the things that we need to provide for people in custody in order that they will stay safe and protected while they're incarcerated. So it's like a deal we make with ourselves. If you think about the state as kind of different parts of different parts of society bargaining with one another, um, we end up with this carceral 
system. And it's really interesting to me to hear you say that you haven't heard this perspective before. Part of me is not surprised because politically, that is not the tend to, doesn't tend to be the way we frame it. But as soon as you think about, you know, the public health dimensions, for example, of, of incarceration, or the mental health, the challenges of caring in custody for people with mental health um, issues, just to take a couple of examples, you see there that what you're saying is the state has an obligation to provide for people who have these particular needs. And so our question collectively is how do we do that in a just and humane way? As soon as you start thinking about it in those terms, you're ending up at society's carceral burden and all we're debating is how we best fulfill that burden. Wow, that's very profound for you to bring in the insight of just people who were previously institutionalized for mental illness being transferred to prisons and the state not being able to fulfill those needs and providing that care to people who may need help, but you know they can't be on the streets, they can't be in hospitals, so the next best thing to do is put them in prison. That's not necessarily a good option in, in terms of our, our society. Yeah, agreed. And being that you are at UCLA and you're in California and there's been a huge movement on the decriminalization of marijuana, how do you think that's going to affect our current mass incarceration rates at the moment? Uh, not as much as people would think. Obviously, given the nature of the if you want to call it a crime in those places where it's still a crime of possessing and selling marijuana, which is, you know, a substance that is no more dangerous than alcohol, which is sold freely on every corner store, to the extent that people are criminalized for that conduct, I'm all on board with making sure that nobody is going into custody uh, for that reason. I think it's a mistake for people to think that that is the driver of mass incarceration. You know, there, if there's anybody left in prison on a minor marijuana charge, you know, they're few and far between. And even if we, even if we expanded it, not just to marijuana, but to all drugs, even if we decriminalized or legalized all uh, banned substances tomorrow and let everybody out of prison who's incarcerated on a drug charge, we would still have the biggest, you know, we'd still be the world's leading jailer uh, even after that. So I think there's actually a risk involved in thinking about decarceration, if that's what we're talking about through the lens of drug criminalization, because what it does is it creates this notion that there are people who are deserving in prison of maybe of release of more humane conditions. And then there are those other people that are not the marijuana, you know, people of marijuana convictions. So we, so those are the, those are the bad people is the idea. And I just reject, I think, you know, there's a growing movement to reject that dichotomy. And I reject it myself because my view is no matter what you've done, you deserve to be treated humanely while you're in custody. And I also think that there are many, many people who've committed a wide range of crimes who could safely be released tomorrow and they would pose no more public safety threat than I would or you, you would. And those people should be released regardless of their offensive conviction. So I think we have to kind of, as a society, if we really want to take seriously that we need to um, dramatically shrink the carceral footprint that we've got, we have to take seriously that our people who committed crimes that are classified as violent who you know, need to be released. And what would you say would be the biggest driver of mass incarceration? There's a debate about whether the driver comes from the prosecutor's offices. Is it about the legislators expanding the uh, length of time people are gonna stay in custody, expanding the kinds of conduct that are, you know, that are uh, expose people to 
um, carceral punishment. You know, it, it's just it's just clear that starting in the late 1970s, we nationally adopted a range of policies that together combined to dramatically drive up the carceral population. And we haven't really fully reckoned yet with the implications of that. I mean, the last 10 years has seen obviously a groundswell of public objection to and challenge to, first of all, recognition of, and then objection to and challenge to the vast sweep of the carceral system in the United States. And I think in order to shrink the carceral footprint, as I said, we're gonna have to tackle each piece of that um, in order to really make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. There is a lot to this issue that often people don't see. I, I know that earlier this year, uh, President Biden announced that he was gonna crack down on private prisons. And there was an outcry about that, saying that private prisons only incarcerate about 2% of the population that he was supposedly trying to help or elevate. So what do you think would be more effective, broader spanning policy changes that we could start to make to move toward decarceration? Well, I mean, let me just say about Biden's prohibition on, you know, this is a kind of political football, the prohibition on, on the federal system using private contractors to run their detention centers. Um, you know, Obama, in the Obama administration, he signed an executive order that would have canceled, like not, the, the order was not to immediately cease using private um, prison providers. It was to not renew contracts as they, as they came up. And then Trump came into office and reversed that policy. So reinstated the government's use of um, and contracting with private prison providers. So now Biden is just reversing the reversal. You know, and I'm, I'm in favor of the reversal because I'm against, I'm against private prisons, not because they're the whole problem, but because they're kind of extreme version of a phenomenon that we see across the board, which is looking at prisons as a kind of economic transaction. And our goal is to do it as cheaply. Like the assumption is we're just gonna do it anyway. And then private prisons are a way that, that like the states can do it more cheaply. And for me, the goal is not to do the same thing for less money. The goal is to try to do far less of what we're doing and do what we do in a more humane way. Um, and so, you know, as I said a second ago, if the question is, how do we tackle the problem of reducing the carceral footprint? You know, there are different policies at, at every level. You know, I mean, in this past year, we've seen in very granular detail what policies are available that can reduce, um, that can be adopted at different levels of government to reduce the number of people in custody and what the obstacles are to making them meaningful. So when COVID hit and there was a recognition that we needed to dramatically reduce the population density in prisons and jails, um, there was this initial push sort of between mid-March and mid-May. So for about two months, you had government officials at all levels thinking, what can I do in my wheelhouse to reduce the number of people in custody. So you saw law enforcement um, making policies on the jail side, you know, to incarcerate fewer people, to um, arrest, you know, arrest fewer people than incarcerate fewer people, and not to process warrants, and um, not to incarcerate people for failure to pay fines and fees, you know, things that could be done on the law enforcement side. You had state Supreme Court justices in New Jersey and elsewhere who have authority over the certain categories of jail detainees. Um, basically ordering their states to release anybody on a probation violation or a misdemeanor, somebody who's doing time for a misdemeanor charge, or, you know, somebody who's, who's there for unpaid fines. These categories of people that until then 
we, the system had taken for granted was um, appropriate to incarcerate. And now, you know, all these people are saying, well, you don't really need to incarcerate those people. We need to get them out. And my view is just to, you know, just on the jail side, if we recognize in the moment of urgency that we could release those people safely, then we have no business incarcerating them in the first place, right? We should be asking ourselves, why do we ever incarcerate these categories of people? But that's just one example. There were other examples um, on the, you know, on the prison side where we learned and saw in real time that there are many fewer mechanisms for releasing people from custody before the expiration of their stipulated sentence. Um, but we saw that there were a few mechanisms, some of which were somewhat effective, others of which we now see could have been effective, but for certain differences, for example, compassionate release is something we're working on to try to think about, you know, in most cases, it didn't do a whole lot and not many, and very few people got out on compassionate release, but um, we're seeing that with some procedural changes and some meaningful commitment to making compassionate release practicable, that could have, that could also be a, a channel for release. So I say all of this just to give you a flavor of how broad the range is of available mechanisms that could be mobilized to release people. And my view is we didn't do enough of it during COVID and it stopped way too soon for reasons I'm happy to talk about. Um, but now going forward, we've now sort of seen the landscape and we have to figure out which of those mechanisms can we double down on right now? Which ones of those mechanisms for release can we, can we tweak to try to improve, increase the number of people who can be released? And you know, how do we do this consistent with the recognition of um, you know, the legitimate public safety concerns, but also recognizing that most people in prison, especially people who have been there for decades, the lifers, can be safely released with little public safety threat, and that there are public health and societal costs to keeping people incarcerated beyond the time when they can be released. So, you know, I think it's going to have to be an all hands on deck, all strategies on the table moment. And I'm hoping that what we've seen during COVID will motivate the kind of policy change that we'd like to see. And I will say, you know, I just, um, just in the last week or so, the California prison system just announced a set of regulatory changes that will expand the available uh, good time credits that everyone in the system can earn. And what that does is it says to people who are in custody, look, here are some ways that you can demonstrate your successful rehabilitation. You know, you take these programs, you do these educational courses, follow the rules in these, in these ways. And as you do that, you will earn time off your sentence, which makes perfect sense because if you're doing those things, you're demonstrating a kind of pro-social outlook that is exactly what we wanna see from people when they're released. And so if you've reached the point where you can do all those things in a way where people inside are pretty confident that you can be safe to release, then there's no reason to keep you. But I noticed that there was some coverage that frames it as California, and I think there are 76,000 people in the system who will be eligible to earn good time credits. So I noticed that there was some media coverage where the headlines were, you know, California to release early 76,000 violent offenders. So it, it is, it, there, it's tweaking the politics to develop hostility to a policy that is actually completely well-founded and is entirely consistent with society's best interests. It's a way of ginning up opposition on the basis of tired old tropes, which are not um, unrelated to the kind of racist tropes that we're now very familiar with during the, you know, having seen what happened with George Floyd and other African-Americans killed by police, it's the same note that is being played. And it concerns me because it was that set of dynamics that led to a prison system that has a, you know, grossly disproportionate number of African-Americans and other people of color. And those are the people that are, you know, are, are imagined by a headline like the one I just mentioned 
as if, you know, as if you have a population of people who all have machine guns who are ready to come out and hurt your families when in fact, it's the opposite. It's people who have served time, they've aged out of crime, they've, they've satisfied good time requirements and demonstrated their perfect capacity to engage safely in the world. And we should be getting those people out so that they can live full and meaningful lives. That's a really interesting point, Dr. Dolovich. A lot of policy, a lot of the way that the issue of the way that incarcerated people are treated is politicized is due to perception and propaganda. So in the interest of propagating accurate information, can you tell us a little bit more about the compassionate release policy that you mentioned and also clarify what good time credits are? Well, good time credits are kind of, that's kind of catch-all term for programs in the prison, and they might be educational programs or work programs or um, mentorship programs. It's like, imagine, you know, you're earning college credits, but instead you're earning good time credits. And so for every program you complete, you're earning time off your sentence. And the old phrasing is time off for good behavior, but it's really a kind of exchange where the prison is saying, if you do these things, you'll be demonstrating to us that we actually have less of a reason to want to keep you in custody. So you do these things and then you'll demonstrate your safety to be you know, in society with others and then you will be released early. So that's the idea there. Compassionate release is again, a kind of catch-all term for a set of regulatory opportunities that are, take different shape in every jurisdiction. So what our work has shown is that you know, every state has a one or two or three ways to get out on a so-called compassionate release and they apply to different categories of people. But the basic idea is it applies to people who are older, like usually over 65, who have in most cases served a fairly long time and who are, you know, they're either they're elderly and or they have some medically compromised situation or they have some medical condition that makes it makes incarceration more arduous for them, makes it harder for them to live their lives in a safe and comfortable way inside and also makes them far less likely to re-offend uh, re once they're released. So compassionate release is sort of a way where if you fit this category of elderly and or medically compromised, you can a petition for release before the expiration of your sentence. And it's very tightly held, I think, for two reasons. One is the system that incarcerates you wants to keep incarcerating you. You know, Kevin Ring, who's the president of FAM, puts it, he, he said jailers got a jail, and I think that captures what goes on here. If you have a system that's designed to jail, you have to give them a really good reason to not jail, to actually release people. So it becomes very hard. You know, the, the bar for qualifying for compassionate release can be quite high. And the other problem is that what we've seen is the usual pattern in state legislatures is someone at some point will have proposed a bill that has some version of compassionate release. It's called medical parole or elderly furlough or geriatric parole. There's all kinds of terms for it, but the basic idea is what I've just said. And so they propose a mechanism for here's how it would work. Like someone who thinks they're qualified could apply and then their case could be considered by the president if they see that this person is qualifies on the requirements and is safe to release, then they'll be released. Um, but then what seems to happen is it always becomes a political football and a, you know, sort of the quote unquote tough on crime crowd in the legislature, whatever the jurisdiction is, will then lard up the standard with all kinds of restrictions that make it really hard. So maybe the standard becomes, you have to have a doctor saying you're within six months of death. Well, how do you find a doctor? Doctors can't say that. Or you, know, you have to get the approval of these seven officials in the prison system all the way up to the commissioner of corrections. Well, 
if you actually are going to qualify for compassionate release, you may die before everybody has a chance to look at your case, which tragically happens not infrequently. Um, and the other thing that we see that's constant is there's always what I think of as the unless clause. So they'll say, anybody who is elderly and or medically compromised on these terms is entitled to petition for compassionate release unless they were convicted of. So then you'll get whatever the list is that this legislature thinks is the most heinous crimes. One of the interesting things is it varies. So there's no kind of, you know, inherent sense of what the least quote unquote least deserving people are. My own view is there should be no exclusions because if you've reached the close to the end of your life and if you've served, you know, decades in prison such that your we know your recidivism um, likelihood is incredibly small. Um, and especially if you're infirm, then there's actually the fact that you may have committed a rape 40 years ago should not signify at all, in my view. Having, you know, since you've served 40 years, you've more than, as I was saying before, more than paid your debt to society on that framing. Um, but every jurisdiction has a set of, has an unless clause. And that, you know, so that's one of the other ways that it gets, that it gets constrained. And we actually saw the unless clause did a lot of work um, in undermining the success of getting people out on compassionate release in the, in the state systems because people who are elderly and or medically compromised in prison are the ones who are likely to have, have been there for a long time serving long sentences because people tend to commit their crimes when they're younger. So if you reach the point that you're elderly and or medically compromised in prison, you've probably committed one of the serious crimes that excludes you from compassionate release. I'm just giving you examples of procedural infelicities that undermine meaningful compassionate release protocols. And our posture at the project, the data project is to say, if you want there to be something meaningful in compassionate release, let us show you how you've undercut the ability of your own system to do this, to make this process meaningful. And so that's the report we're writing now is we wanna to suggest to each state how they could revise their programs to actually make it workable for people. It's so frustrating to consider the fact that like you have to be basically at the brink of death to even have a consideration of being released. And I can only imagine the play that other identities such as race can play. Absolutely. And the yep. fact that black and brown people may not get released at the same rates and they may be seen as more heinous or more dangerous to society than someone who is not of that race. Or I guess it's a little discouraging in that front, but you, I'm sure you're right about the racial disparity. I, mean, I don't have data, but I, 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 my guess is, my intuition is you're right about the racial disparity and who gets granted compassionate release. But you need to keep in mind that the, the work that race bias is doing comes in long before you get to the point of petitioning for compassionate release. So mm -hmm. we have an overrepresentation of people in, um, of color in custody. And, and the other thing I just wanted to say is there is a movement that is giving me some hope that I wanted to mention for your listeners, because if there's a question about what kind of political push can people who care about these things make to try to foster better policies, um, there's a movement that's related to compassionate release that is being known as, you know, has become known as second look, second look sentencing. And if compassionate release is limited to these categories of, you know, the oldest and most medically compromised uh, prisoners, as I mentioned, Second look is the idea that says everybody, when they've reached a certain point in their sentence, deserves to have another careful scrutiny of their sentence to see whether we still think it's appropriate, we still think it's fair, we still think you need to remain in custody. And it's informed by 
first of all, the recognition that people grow and change in prison in spite of the, you know, inhumane conditions. And also by the recognition that our 2021 sense of what a fair punishment is, is very different than the sense of what, a, what an appropriate punishment was that defined a lot of these punishments during the tough on crime era. And so what people are saying is, look, society has moved on. And today, people who committed the same crime might not have been given the harsh sentence that we gave to people who are already serving time. And so maybe we should give those people a chance to make the case. And so the federal compassionate release statute, which is actually the most um, effective, it's the one, it's still, it's still got serious problems, but it's been much more effective during COVID because of changes that came in the First Step Act. Um, it's been used for compassionate release purposes during COVID, but there's also a group of lawyers now that is making the argument that if you read it on its face, it actually is a second look statute. So some of the political pressure is coming on the federal side to try to keep the Sentencing Commission endorsing the idea of a second look rather than changing the language to, to, to eliminate that option. And then in the states, in the state systems, there are a lot of advocates in every state who are starting to push their legislators to get a bill that would allow the right of second look sentencing for everyone. And that to me is an incredibly promising um, pathway that I hope your listeners will kind of pay attention to and, and help effectuate. That's amazing. And it just goes to show the impact that advocates can make in shifting the way that things are going in our society in terms of incarcerated persons, because you don't necessarily have to be a lawyer to advocate, just a common person, being able to write letters or reach out to their local congressman or to their local Senate, then they're able to really make an impact. So that's super exciting to hear. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree, absolutely. It is exciting and it's very promising, I think. And to shift our gears towards just learning a little bit about the COVID-19 Behind Bars project, do you mind going into details on how you felt inspired to launch this project? Yeah, I'd be happy to tell you about the project. I feel, you know, honesty compels me to say that it wasn't as if I one day woke up and said, I have this great idea, let's start a COVID data project. It almost felt forced on me by, by the moment because, you know, I happen to be at this place where I've been studying this long enough that I have a feel for the issues. I have a background in the legal, you know, I have a knowledge of the legal um, kind of foundations of incarceration. And I feel I'm lucky enough to be connected to advocates around the country who work on behalf of incarcerated people. And at the very beginning of the pandemic, um, the prisoners rights listserv that I'm on, which is a kind of informal listserv of the National Prisoners Rights FAR, where people started posting um, the, 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 from, from states around the country saying that their prison systems, you know, so, you know, I hope your listeners understand that um, we have a federal prison system, but every state also has its own prison system. So every state has a Department of Corrections, um, which runs the prisons that house the people who are convicted of state crimes and sentenced to time in the states. So California Department of Corrections or the Arkansas Department of Corrections or what have you. And so every state prison system has its own rules. And pretty much all this one week in the middle of March, prison systems around the country started canceling visits as their first line response to COVID to try to reduce the, the you know, movement of people in and out of the facilities. And people on the listserv were posting, just saying, hey, in Montana, they just canceled visits. In California, they just canceled visits, et cetera. And I thought, you know, I study prisons. This is a big deal. It seemed, I didn't realize how, what a big deal it was going to get. But um, I said to my research assistant, can I just ask you to keep track so I know what's happening around the country? So he created a spreadsheet, just a spreadsheet that had all the visitation policy changes. And then somebody on the listserv said, hey, can one of our academic friends 
create an open source spreadsheet so we can all share our work product because all the advocates were mobilizing to write briefs and demand letters trying to get people out of prison um, in the wake, you know, in advance of the spread of COVID, recognizing that crowding in the prisons was going to lead to a huge um, disproportionate risk um, of COVID infection um, if we didn't act. So I said, hey, I've got this spreadsheet. Why don't we just make it open source? And one tab can be for visitation policies, and one tab can be for people to share their, you know, their population reduction demands or requests, and then people can use it. You know, so I just put the spreadsheet up two tabs, and then people started posting to it, and then people started sharing it, and then people started reaching out to me and pointing out things that we could also create a tab for. So releases had begun. Can we have a tab tracking releases? And you know, people said, I, Maddie Delone in New York called me and said, I noticed you're not tracking releases. Would you like me to do that for you? Yeah, that would be great. So we set her up on the tab and we created columns and she started getting, you know, she got a group of volunteers, they started tracking and posting to the data set. And then the same thing happened with youth facilities and immigration detention and case filings. And then before you know it, we had this very robust data set. The most important thing in that, in that period, that was just the first month, was that departments of corrections started posting their COVID data online. And I got to say that is a dramatic shift because prisons are the most secretive institutions you'll ever find. And in no prior instance, no matter how brutal the conditions have gotten inside, has there been any public facing data availability like this, but it happened. And so I had some other people reach out to me and say, do you need some help? And so I enlisted to Grace, Grace Delora, who's a UCLA grad and Kaylin Parrish, who's now at Yale Law School. And the two of them started manually putting all the data into a spreadsheet. So everybody could just go to our spreadsheet and see what was happening around the country. And then um, David Menchel of the Vital Projects Fund reached out and said, can I help you in any way? Do you need any money? Like, you know, can I help you? And I said, yeah, actually, we need some data scientists to help us scrape all this data and, and clean it and make it available to people to study. You know, then we got more funding and we hired more people. And so now we have eight staff members, four data scientists and four policy analyst, communications manager, et cetera. And we have an interactive website where we have a blog and we're posting interesting things that we're finding in the data. We're still tracking the data every day and, and posting it and making it available. We're also connecting up our data set to other data sets to allow analysis of what's happening, you know, allowing public policy and public health people to actually analyze what's going on. Um, and we've published some papers also analyzing what's going on. So this whole thing, you know, it wasn't that I woke up one day and said, I want to start this data project. It was more that it just happened of its own accord. And before I knew it, we had this project that feels very urgent uh, and meaningful. And just one other thing I'll say um, about the urgency of it is early on, we, re we discovered that the CDC was actually relying on our data. And so eventually they started funding us. And now we supply the data on what's happening in COVID and custody to the CDC so that they can use accurate data for their public policy recommendations. That is amazing. Seriously, I love how you frame that story as sort of a community effort where through your network, you all built off of each other and created this incredible bank of publicly accessible data. And what I really want to know is based off of the data that you've seen and gathered and your involvement with this project, what have you learned about what we owe to people who are behind bars in terms of dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic? What burden of care does society have toward them in this context? Uh, I'm so grateful to you for phrasing the question that way. I really appreciate that. I would say there, there's, I've learned so much about the way we, you know, what we owe people in custody and the way we are unfortunately failing to fulfill our carceral burden in this moment. 
most basic is the lack of transparency. I just said this is the most transparent the prisons have ever gotten. But the fact is that the data quality and transparency is still deeply lacking. In fact, one of the projects that we've put together, one of our initiatives is a data transparency and data quality scorecard, where we've rated the data um, quality and transparency of all of the departments of corrections. And you can see it on our website. Um, and basically, I think at last count, 83% of the agencies we track got a failing grade. So they're not doing what they should be doing. And that's the prisons. On the jail side, there's almost no jails that are posting any data at all, if they're even gathering it. So what this tells us is, you know, this is an instance where as an urgent matter of public policy and public health, we need to have good data and good understanding of what's actually happening with COVID inside in order that we can stem the spread. Because, you know, I, I think your listeners may or may not know that 90 of the 100 top hotspots of COVID infection in the country over the course of the pandemic have been prisons and jails. And so even just from a, from a totally non-carceral focused um, public health perspective, you, if you want to get COVID under control, you need to stop it in prisons and jails. And that's been true over the course of the pandemic. That isn't even, of course, to think about the moral obligation that we have to the people that we incarcerate to keep them safe from an outsized risk of infection and death. So there's an urgency of data transparency that I think um, has been really exposed during this period. And one of the things that I say a lot is that what prison officials seem to be forgetting is that they are public servants serving the public. And that means, you know, we should be as a public kept informed of what happens in prison. Information about what happens in prison is not proprietary to prison officials. It belongs to us. So I'm hoping that one of the things that comes out of this period is a recognition of the need for dramatically increased transparency. So that's thing number one. The other thing is just related to what I've been saying all along. If you incarcerate people, if we choose to incarcerate people, we have an obligation to keep people safe from harm. And prison conditions that were in place, you know, have been in place for decades that, you know, many of us have been trying to sound the alarm about, but which public, the public has generally ignored, are the very conditions that have led to this outsized risk of COVID in custody. So, you know, right March of last year, prison conditions, prisons were, and still are, you know, crowded and unhygienic and with terrible medical care and, you know, a high number of people who are elderly and are medically compromised. And these are just some of the conditions that have made, that made prisons especially dangerous in COVID. Um, so we, for, law, for decades, we've been failing in our obligation because we should have been providing humane conditions all along. And now COVID has exposed just how inhumane they are. And here we have this um, predictable, in one sense surprising, but in another sense totally predictable pandemic. And rather than shifting dramatically away from a carceral model to try to help people get out of what I, you know, I was saying this is like a burning building, you have to get people out of a burning building. Instead, uh, after about mid-May of last year, the public and corrections officials seem to shrug their shoulders and say, oh, well. And as a result, what you've seen in the prisons is disproportionate um, infection rate and disproportionate death. So we published some data last summer in collaboration with some public health people at Johns Hopkins in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And what we found was in the first four months of the pandemic, people in, this was just in our data, was just from prisons, were infected at 5.5 times the rate of people in society as a whole. And once you adjusted for age, they were dying at three times the rate. And what we found, we're sort of doing the update to that data now. And what we're finding is 
the disparity rate in death shrunk somewhat because the rate went up in the national numbers, but it was always at least two and a half times the number of people dying in prison adjusted for age as compared with the population as a whole. And even in periods where it was getting better outside, it was still disproportionately high and not improving in the prison. So, you know, the numbers kind of bear out our worst fears. So first of all, I see this as a glaring failure of our obligation to people in custody and a, and a moral blot on uh, the American public. And I hope that people will be as distressed as I am and that the distress will motivate pressure to not just reduce the carceral footprint, but to make a commitment to improving prison conditions for the people that remain in custody. Because the fact is that every, every society is gonna have some version of prison for some people. I think it should be many fewer people. But if there are some people that we think society must, for safety reasons, incarcerate, we still have an obligation to treat them humanely. And we are just so far from meeting that obligation. It's hard to believe. I think you made a lot of really interesting points there. And one of the ones that really resonated with us as scientists, as people who are driven by data, is the idea of using empirically founded policy changes and really driving public engagement. So can you tell us a little bit more about how uh, the work you do as a professor of law and as an advocate kind of helps drive public engagement and pushes for empirically based policy solutions? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know quite how to answer that. I mean, my work apart from COVID has been very much making the normative case and showing that it's legally entailed. So I focus a lot on the constitution and in the eighth amendment obligations that we have to people we incarcerate and try to make the case that we are failing in, in our judicial enforcement of eighth amendment obligations in the hopes that the, my understanding, uh, you know, the, the frame that we've been using, the carceral burden frame, um, which I think is entailed in the constitution will be in my hope is that that would become the frame with which we approach carceral policy, you know, and all my arguments are grounded very much in the concrete. So I rely on the data of criminologists and public policy people, you know, I, as I said, I did an ethnogra ethnographic study in the LA County Jail. And so I've contributed qualitative insight to that understanding. But my view all along has been, we have to look at issues of carceral policy and constitutional law through the lens of what actually happens on the ground. Um, and, you know, I, every year I, um, at UCLA, we have the Prison Law Policy Program, which has brought some students to the law school who are just fantastic and um, so dedicated and committed to going and advocating on behalf of incarcerated people. So I feel like what we do at the law school is to train the advocates who will push policy and um, push courts to do the right thing for their clients. The work that we're doing, I think, on the data project has a much more direct policy impact in addition to creating the data set for others to study, we've begun looking at what we have and trying to figure out what we can do to what we can show with the data that we have. And so we've just we have an article in preprint that um, focuses on excess mortality in Florida state prisons during the pandemic. And the idea there was to look at one state where we had really good data to demonstrate just how great the mortality cost has been for people in custody in the hope that it will drive public policy debate. So I'll just quickly tell you the top line findings. There were two of them. The first had to do with the excess mortality. You know, the way public health people look at the, this data is to say, all right, in 2016, 17, 18, and 19, here is the percentage of 
people who died in Florida prison. You know, every year people die in prison just like they die in society. Um, and so then we looked at the nine months of the pandemic, you know, adjusted for age and population uh, to see what the excess mortality was. Uh, and we compared that excess mortality to the Florida state population as a whole. So on that metric, we found that the Florida state population had 15% increased mortality during the nine months of the pandemic. So 15% more people died during the COVID period than we would have expected otherwise. And in the prisons, it was 42%, so almost three times. And then the other metric that we calculated, and I should say here that Neil Marquez on our data team was the lead author on the study. The other metric has to do with the reduction in life expectancy. And here, this is another measure that public health people use to try to gauge the, the mortality effects of um, major historical events. So for example, in World War I and World War II, the overall drop in the American life expectancy because of all the young men who died was roughly a year, or I think a, between a year and a year and a half. Nationally, COVID, the drop in life expectancy was 1.0 years. For women, it was 0.9 years, and for men, it was 1.2 years. And by comparison, we found that in the Florida Department of Corrections, the overall drop of life expectancy among prisoners during COVID was 4.12 years. So four times the life expectancy impact of the national numbers. But once you get to the bottom line, what you realize is that our correctional policies have taken what was already like, you know, people are talking about the impact and mortality impact of COVID in the country as historic and catastrophic. And it, imagine quadrupling that historic and catastrophic effect. And the people who are bearing the brunt are some of the most vulnerable and disadvantaged people who are incarcerated in Florida prisons. So that's the kind of one way that our data work, identifying trends that I'm very much hoping will be the sort of evidence-based foundation that you were suggesting for a strong political push for change. This is also amazing, just the work that you've been doing and your team and the contributions that you've made towards helping to influence a more equitable policy and different aspects in terms of like the recommendation towards vaccinating prisoners and just reading all the contributions that your team has made has truly been inspiring. What are ways that people can get involved in the COVID-19 behind our data project? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, We actually have used a huge, we've benefited from the energy and commitment of a very large number of volunteers. Um, We've had, I think, almost 300 now active volunteers over the course of the project. Um, And we have volunteers that are, you know, have a lot of law students, a lot of college students, not from UCLA, but also from around the country and some from other countries as well. But we also have high school students and graduates and, and, you know, people who are in the workforce. So people, you know, we get contacted all the time by people and you don't have to be a data scientist. We have many projects that just need engaged, you know, non-specialists, but committed labor to try to help us piece together some of the um, gaps in our data and, and our policy work. So if anybody is interested in, that is listening, is interested in volunteering, they can reach out to me at Dolovich, D-O-L-O-V-I-C-H, um, Dolovich at law.ucla.edu, and they could let me know and I will connect them with our volunteer coordinator. We have a, an ongoing list of projects that need volunteer staffing and we can just send them the projects and see what they are willing to help us with. And I guess the only other thing to say is that I really appreciate all the kind words that you um, said about what we're accomplishing. I'm finding um, we're in a tricky position right now because the foundation funding that we have received so far 
it seems like it's not largely going to be renewed because it seems that foundations think that COVID is over. And so if any of your listeners has a line on funding that will continue to support our work, I would be eager to hear about that too. So just to close out, we covered a lot of really interesting ground here, but there may be a lot of our listeners who are sort of hearing all of this and are really inspired and motivated to go out there and start making some change, but they're maybe wondering where they should start. What sort yeah. of advice would you offer to those people? Um, well, it depends on what level of involvement they're thinking of. If you're thinking about people who want to advocate around COVID policies, I would encourage your listeners to go to our website, which is uclacovidbehindbars.org, and we have state-by-state -state data, including um, what we're finding in terms of the transparency scorecards. And just one easy thing that people could do to start with is to figure out how their state is doing on data quality and transparency around COVID. And if they're unhappy with their state score to reach out to their state reps and just make noise and ask why the data is so inadequate in their jurisdictions. And to take a look at some of the other data too and see what they're thinking about. You know, if people are unhappy with the, what, the, what was happening on releases or on COVID infections or on the slow rate of vaccination, those are all advocacy points that they could, you know, we'd, we'd welcome uh, they're raising those issues with their state reps because you know what we're trying to do is provide people with the data so they can see where the failures are in their jurisdictions and then try to make change that way. Um, in terms of the broader set of questions, there are, there are all kinds of organizations that are dedicated to you know, decarceration on the one hand or um, improving prison conditions on the other. You know, and there, there are many um, channels through which people can make a difference, whether it's in healthcare, as you two are you know, the, the line you two are pursuing, whether it's in the legal context. And if people are interested in prison law, um, you know, I hope they'll keep UCLA in mind. We have a really robust prison law and policy program, as I said, and I'd be happy to, you know, talk to people about their interest um, or in any law school they happen to go to push for, you know, courses and um, pedagogy curriculum on this area so that future, you know, in the law context that future lawyers will understand the legal issues and be able to advocate. And I think that there's, you know, I think people educating themselves, um, finding local groups that are dedicated to this work, and there are many of them, and then taking the initiative to make political noise. I think those are some of the, at least some of the things I would recommend. Compared to free citizens, incarcerated persons in the United States are five times as likely to be infected with COVID and three times as likely to die from it. When we as a society are presented with such data, it becomes our burden and responsibility to decide how to treat our fellow citizens humanely. What changes can we push for to improve their situation? What changes can you push for? <laughs>